Hey, Matt, how's it going? Good, mate. How are you? We're just doing a podcast about, I guess it's all about the future. It's like design teaching, but like Nikki's talking a lot about the future and, and kind of what graphic design holds and how to teach the future. You got any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know what? I spoke to Blair Ends just the other week. Oh, yeah. Like, win without pitching. Win without pitching, pricing creativity. And I mean, if there's a better teacher around how to turn your design into gold, I don't think uh, I've found them <laughs> apart from Blair. And, uh, you know, he's been around for years. And literally, you know, when we when we chatted, I'm always amazed at how we're not doing a better job of making money out of our work. And one of the things that I think he does really well is explains value-based pricing. And I haven't heard anyone explain value-based pricing and how to have the conversation better with a client than he has. And so, uh, you know what? I'll send you a link to the event. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, brilliant. Perfect. All right, I don't want to hold you up. Enjoy the show. That was Andy Wright, CEO of Streamtime, good friend and supporter of ADR. If you haven't tried out Streamtime before, make sure you do. You can get a free trial and a 20% discount by going to streamtime.net forward slash ADR 2020. Welcome to Australian Design Radio, a podcast seeking to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. Part of that is acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, recognising their enduring connections to the land, its knowledge and its stories. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Matt Leach and I'm your host and on this episode I'm joined by co-host Stephanie Foti for the last in her series on what makes a great design teacher. It's been wonderful to work with Steph in this mini-series, choosing the guests, writing the questions, and doing research together. If you've enjoyed this mini-series, reach out to Steph and let her know. Okay, on to our guest, Nikki Ragg, Chair of Communication Design at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. If you work in design education in Australia, there's a good chance you've come across Nikki before. She's a leader in the field of teaching design, and as you'll hear, she's been doing it for more than two decades. One of the things she's best known for is leading that team that managed to get Swinburne's design course online. It's a momentous task that allowed people from all over the world to experience that renowned course. Personally for me, she's always been best practice when it comes to teaching design. She inspires both her students and her colleagues and has been a huge advocate for increasing the public's awareness of the value of design. So let's jump into it. We begin with Stephanie questioning Nikki about why she was originally attracted to teaching design. So Nikki, after studying graphic design in the 80s, you entered the design industry and worked in the areas of brand and publication. In the late 90s, the calling to education was strong and you started working at the University of Melbourne. So what was the pull to design education? I was still working in the industry and then I was asked to to do some sessional lecturing in the Bachelor of Education program at Melbourne Uni Design. And so those students who were doing an art area were able to specialise in furniture making or um, woodwork or or design. And so I was teaching in design. And it was fantastic. There was so much freedom. It was incredibly scary initially because you're walking into this <laughs> this group not knowing what to expect and, and they weren't real – well – they were designers, 
but they were studying to teach design. And so there was a different kind of aspect going on within what you're asking them to do. But, you know, they were producing some really, really lovely work and and it was um, really exciting. And just last year, one of them actually got in contact with me and said, I've been working as a designer ever since you taught me and, you know, (laughs) You know, I just want to thank you. And it was so nice to hear because you just went, wow, you know, it was it was a yeah. really um, lovely group, you know, and, and it was because it wasn't purely graphic design or anything like that, you, you got these great sort of synergies between the woodworking department, between the photography and the painting mm, yeah. and things like that. Do you think they knew you were nervous? Oh, everybody knows you're nervous when you first go in. <laughs> And I think it's one thing that you never lose. I mean, I know that I start every year and my knees start wobbling (laughs) until I know those students. And and It just means you're pushing yourself in the right direction, doesn't it? Yeah. You get the jitters. Before we talk too much about education, I want to ask a few questions about your Doctor of Philosophy, your PhD. It's a Doctor of Philosophy, but the field of study was web design and visual communication, which doesn't normally seem like things that would go together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It was an interesting space. I was looking at, because I was working in the multimedia design department, that was kind of the area that I was focusing on wanting to kind of look at something in the digital space and something in the in the graphic design space or the communication design space and bring them together. So my thesis ended up looking at the examination of designers and their perceptions of interactivity. And so with that, I interviewed a number of designers across Australia. I asked them, we, we had a, a fairly substantial interview session. Then I asked them to map their a visual understanding of what interactivity was for them. And then I also got them to supply me with uh, two commercial websites that they had designed um, where they thought was very good use of interactivity, two pro bono or self-initiated websites that they had designed with the same question, what, what you know, benchmarking interactivity practice within their, their work, and then two websites that they thought were inspirational in their use of interactivity and it's interesting that you ask that because I interviewed the designers in 2008 and just recently this year where I published a paper with one of my colleagues which takes an archival view of all of that data. So we went and cut oh, right. it and reanalyzed it all again to actually turn around and say this is what graphic designers contributed to to an understanding of interactivity because they've never been acknowledged for that. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, that's it. It is because there were a lot of very loud voices. Um, right. You've got HCI, which was very much about usability and, and simplicity. And so that was, uh, they thought graphic designers were all about aesthetics. So they were right. much more interested in saying, well, early web, you can't have what graphic designers want in the 80s or the 90s, which was still off the back of, you know, a very postmodern approach to design. 
and we were learning it by day and doing it by night time. I mean, that yeah. was the thing. You were just running at 100 miles an hour to catch up because the business world suddenly wanted it and what was it. And so designers were sort of embedding their practice, um, working through things that they had to do, but just to keep up with it. They, they weren't in the scholarly debate. Yeah. Their, their, their research was their practice, really. Do you think that has changed a lot if we look at present day or do you think there's still a lot further to go? Oh, I, I don't think it's either or. I think there are a lot of designers out there who are very articulate now and know the, you know, understand the importance of being able to articulate their craft and what it is that they do and, and the ideas or the, the days of, you know, the, the big idea and, you know, trust us, we're designers are, are kind of... <laughs> I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're not as prevalent anymore because if somebody's going to hand over large sums of money, they actually want to know what, what you're going to do with it. Yeah. And so there has to be a sort of a, a logical process to be able to explain, explain exactly what it is that you're doing, how you're going about it. So, you know, in a way it does, it is a bit of a repeatable process, but there, there's still room for that spark and that, that you know, mm. that eureka moment and all of those sorts of things. I want to take you back now. Your mother was a sculptor, your father was an engineer, and you've said in interviews that, this juxtaposition of the eclectic and the logical has very much shaped your approach to design and, and design education. Can we dig into that a little bit? And I guess that interview was quite a while ago. Do you still agree with that? Oh, look, it's interesting. After uh, spending quite a lot of time with my, my mother and father over recent years, you get to look at them from a different perspective. And, and yeah, I think... The way they've managed to work together has really shaped what I do, where mum would always be up for anything. Oh, we can solve this problem. I know yeah. how to do it. But it could be the most harebrained scheme. And then <laughs> dad would go, now, come on, Pam, let's work backwards here and work out how we're going to get the sculpture out <laughs> of the door that you've actually just <laughs> built too big. <laughs> So with them, anything was possible. And, and I think, you know, at the time you don't understand it, but when you've sort of grown up and you come back to be with them, you, you kind of start to see how all of those things have worked and, and really yeah. sort of shaped what you do and how you do it. I read a story where she'd made a kiln out of a vacuum cleaner. Is yes. Right? Uh, it was a, a forge. <laughs> right. Brilliant. And it was a forge to bend metal and so she'd plug the vacuum cleaner in and all the, the, the coals would just burn, you know, flare <laughs> up. In. We're jumping around a bit, but you joined Swinburne in early 2001. Now, Swinburne was widely respected. What was it like at that time? In the 90s, it had changed names from graphic design to communication design. And so it was still, you know, a very big program it was a respected program when I say very big as in it was the biggest of the design programs that were at Paran at that point um, we also had industrial design film and tv hadn't been reborn at that point um, but it, it it emerged again and was uh, rebooted and we had 
multimedia design. So when I came back in the, the, you know, started back in 2000 as a sessional and then 2001 as a permanent, I was very much in the multimedia design space and, and that had just been um, really a step back from where I'd been working because I'd been working in Fiji and so we had been producing a yeah. lot of digital stuff for, for people. But the communication design was always the jewel. It was always um, – it had the IP program or the industry placement program and so that was something that, you know, today is still like a heartbeat that goes through that design program and keeps us uh, – relevant keeps us accountable and ensures that you know everything that we do is not just um in accordance with industry but has the ability to kind of go okay well what's needed in industry what how do we sort of prepare students to go into that industry model of a designer but with the idea that they'll be pushing design and mm. progressing the design industry in the future. So, Nikki, what are your thoughts on student internships? Do you think it's something we do well in Australia? This question is sort of coming from like when I studied design and as you mentioned just then, like internships were just like everyone had to do it. Yeah. Mm. But now because of scale and everything, it's it's pretty rare. Yeah, look, it's, it is an interesting thing. I can't – I'm not sure about the whole of Australia. I think – with all internship programs, there, there's a real need to have a set of criteria underpinning what it is that you're doing. What yeah. do you want the students to get out of it? What do you want the industry to get out of it? Um, yeah. What sort of students are you sending out there? Because you can't send out students where it's just going to crush them and industry experience is going to crush them. There's a lot of nuances in there to be able to, to navigate and be able to juggle at any particular point in time. And so, you know, I think um, there are some internships uh, which are you know, paid. And I think they're very good because I think everybody comes there with a, a shared set of expectations about you're an employee. Therefore, this is the behavior that has to go with that. This is the work. This is yeah. what we get in. When it's unpaid, I don't necessarily agree with unpaid internships unless the students or the graduates know exactly what they're getting involved in. And they've got a very good reason as to why they're doing it. So, you know, they might be going to a specialised industry where they really want to learn a particular craft and they know they're only going to get 50 bucks a week. And, and I think if they understand that it's not just the money that they're after, they're actually after knowledge, that's where I go, okay, you, you can make those decisions. But I think the opportunity, that there's so much opportunism that goes on in the intern intern area which kind of hurts the industry from two levels it can exploit the young ones but it also takes the value of of the design elders away because everybody's looking for a, a cheaper young person's mm. option okay i want to pick up on the exploitation a little bit but i'm aware that we're getting into contentious areas so so with the fact there are some internship practices out there that aren't the best what can we do to prepare students for this? Yeah, I, I can respond to that, Matt. I think it's a it's a really important area and I think one of the things which um, 
I like to do with my students is really equip them with the with negotiating tools yeah and to be able to talk and be aware of of what their rights are and and what their value is yeah mm. and and not to be militant about it but just yeah. to be able to pose questions to say okay you're going to pay me this do you know that that is actually pretty close to the award rate yeah. and I'm happy to do that because I want to work with you, but I do want a six monthly review. And I think it's really important, particularly when we're talking about um, the female graduates, because the female graduates in, in communication design uh, outnumber the male graduates in communication design substantially. Yes, that's so true. So giving them negotiation techniques is a good way to armor them up for those tough conversations yeah. about pay and expectations. Mm. So I'm going to shift gears slightly, but you've just celebrated 20 years at Swinburne and that's a long time. What kept you there? Oh, uh, look, I, I, I love the students. I love the people I work with. It's one of those environments that you can um, push against and you can get things done. And you can forge your own ways. There's no real right or wrong way to do things. And, and, and I've been able to, because I love doing stuff, I've been able to just get involved with really interesting projects and get students on board. And for some reason, everybody thinks, believes what I say, that everything <laughs> will be all right and it'll be fantastic. And, and you know, some things work and some things bomb spectacularly. <laughs> but um, but we have a lot of fun doing it. And, um, and I think the other thing which really is interesting is, is that the, we've got such a strong industry education intersection that people come to you because they know you now and yeah. – but you've always got a, a new set of students every year. So there's always new dynamics and there's always different things going going on. But I love the energy and I just love the fact that you can just mobilise people to to really make the impossible possible. I love that. Yeah. So I did a bit of research and it looks like you led the translation of studio-based design education into the first fully online design degree in Australia and I even got the, the year gap 2014 to 2018. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I went to Swinburne Online. So Swinburne Online was a, a centre of an excellence which was set up by Ian Yun, who was the Vice-Chancellor at the time, and it was a, um, a partnership between SEEK and Swinburne. And so that started in 2011 and um, by... 2013 or 2012 they they had decided that they and had done their due diligence and decided that they wanted to develop a online communication design program and a lot of the staff at Swinburne Online had come from the Lilydale campus and so I went I, I went over there and um, I was seconded for a year which turned into four years and it was it, <laughs> it was As they do. yeah absolutely you know there's Got to get a job done well. Um, yeah. And it, it was fantastic. Um, 
they had, you know, if I have the anything's possible or making the impossible possible, you know, they mm-hmm. had it in spades compared to me. You had a whole company like that. And wow. yeah, they were fantastic to work with, really flexible and a, a group of learning designers who, you know, were happy to go along the ride with me. Yeah, right. Well, it was a it was a lot of play actually, you know, just work through different types of things, really start to understand, you know, what is it about the studio and the serendipity of the studio that we love that we need to be able to recreate online? Uh, what is it about the work that we submit that we really want to know that the students have learnt. So what are different ways of submission that doesn't require the students to continually post their work in uh, and, yeah, right. and that it's not just digital? And so there were things there that we looked at and that we trialled and piloted. Some Again, some things worked, some things didn't. You know, blogs never worked really. That was just <laughs> hopeless. We had such high hopes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, the, the whole idea of collaboration has always been a problem with online. Yeah, it, it has been. Um, but there was there were ways of, of looking at it. And, and again, I think it comes back to what are the things that you value in the studio. And it's the communication. It's the ability to listen and get to the depths of what the student is trying to say. And also be really present and in the moment. And it was an interesting space. We, we had 15 students in the first year. Then that doubled in the, in the second teaching period. Then it, it doubled again in the third teaching period. And so it grew pretty quickly. And I think one of the things which was fantastic about it, that it wasn't just Victorian-based. You were getting students from all around yeah. Australia. And so we had, you know, students from Cable Beach, Indigenous students, we had students from Darwin, you know, there were a lot from Melbourne, a lot from Sydney, but on one of the graduations, you know, we'd always have a special stand there for Swinburne Online and one of the students came up and I said, you made it because she'd driven down from Newcastle and she said, yeah, and I said, you know, it's pretty tough because she was a mother of three working full time and and studying online and she said yeah. I, I couldn't have done it any way any other way I couldn't have yeah. gone back to university and she said but now what now I want to go on and do my masters and so amazing those sorts of things you just go well you know education is liberating and and no matter what you're in whether it's design or whether it's you know accounting or or it just allows you to think in a different way and to be able to get out of the routine of what you actually do yeah and be able to view things from a from a different perspective and i think that's what that's the really important part of it and it doesn't i mean some people say oh but if if you don't like it you wear the cost and paying for university but it's one of those things that we all change in our lives and and one thing will lead to another and okay you might not go in there and do the thing that you ended up doing but you might have found another road to go along by doing that and would you you have done that if you hadn't been in a in in an environment that allowed you to explore that sort of stuff yeah that's well put as you were talking I was wondering you know obviously you've been all through COVID and still going through COVID and 
remote working has become a, a thing, a norm. Do you think remote learning is going to, I guess, benefit from that? That's a, it's a good question. I think, I think there are a lot of things that we've learned during COVID that we, we can take into every experience from here on in. And I think some of those things will be to the benefit of online. We've learned to communicate a lot more with empathy because everybody was thrown into the situation and so we had to deal with that. I think our level of tolerance has become increased, particularly when we're working in an online space. Equally, I think there's things that we can take from online and apply on campus as well. And I think that's really important too. You you know, just because you're on campus, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have your online access to online resources. That's really important. So what are all of those things we can do to augment that studio experience? That becomes a really important consideration moving forward. Or what are the things that we can do using technology which will benefit the students so um, an example of that was I do a project with the International Society of Typographic Designers and it gets assessed every year by an educator and a, and a, de- a type de- designer and last year we did it all remotely and so I just said to the students I want you to do a video I want you to introduce yourself, your project, the video. And so you can do that in any particular way. Yes, you can turn the pages, but also you could show some of your iterative development as you go through and and talk about your creative approach, your strategy, any challenges that you faced. Do that while you're showing the outcome. And that was a very interesting exercise because it was almost like a defense of their project, but in an introductory way. Now, right. that sort of three-minute video skill, or th- you know, that's really significant because those videos were just beautiful. And, mm. and you know, if, if they're going to go and do work and pitch remotely and do those sorts of things, that sort of work holds them in good stead. Same as, um, you know, for remote students who want to show their the physicality of their work but via a digital medium, that becomes a really important tool and transferable skill. Nikki, I see teaching as a design opportunity. When you're in charge of designing an entire experience for a classroom of students, you'll be hard-pressed not to learn ways of improving your own work as a designer. Uh, what have you personally learned through teaching? I think one of the biggest things which I, I, I mentioned before was listening and just being in the moment. I think as designers we often want to go on to the next project and the next project and what's new mm-hmm. and shiny and move, move on. But really taking the time and just – I think I've learned to moderate myself a lot and I, because my brain will work at 100 miles an hour and sometimes they can't <laughs> keep up with it. So I've, I've been able to say to them, you know, okay, I'm going to go off in this, uh, on this uh, speed, but you've got – I'm really giving you permission to say, no, slow down, mm-hmm. I need to do this. Um, we, I need to backtrack and do this in this way. And so I think 
for me that's been one of the biggest things that I've 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 personally that I've I've learned. I think the other thing too which um has really come out of uh 20 years is is the art of presentation. And mm. while I, it's not so much lecturing, I I don't think it's it's that. I do love giving a good presentation and doing a yep. good presentation and being able to communicate at one level with what I'm saying, communicating another level with, with the way I'm, I'm moving about a space, but also communicating on another level with the, the, the visual narrative that I'm showing. And, and I think that I really enjoy. It's, it's a total performance piece, not that I'm doing interpretive dance or anything like that <laughs> it kind of is like that <laughs> but that's and and i think that's a really interesting thing because then mm. as a designer if if coming back to matt's point if earlier we don't discuss the our practice that much but then if you think about if you have to write about something you automatically think about how would you present that over three weeks what are the things I would talk about first? How would I make sure that people are getting the yep. threads that I want to see? And I think that's one of the things that I've 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 really enjoyed about it because and and I love being able to celebrate the students' work because we enter in a collaboration. I mean, first year is always a little bit hand-holding because they're new. It, it's it's totally fresh. Second year we let go, but we we still guide. Um, third year they're in the deep end you know it's ambiguous mm. projects they need to be able to really step up and work their way out of that and by honors you know that's increased a thousand fold so it's really about being able to sort of bring them along the, the, their journey and and then being able to celebrate their journey through presentations and so I use a lot of work at different times I take a lot of work and dissect the bits that I like and reconstruct them in presentations to to be able to make points and I think mm. that that's I think that's what I've learned you know mm. the, the, the mm. thing that design you know grows with you and it can um it changes as you as you sort of understand it more and more you bring up a really interesting point because there's a lot of courses out there that are trying to get faster and faster and the four-year course is pretty rare these days do you think there's something to that four-year course like giving yourself time to evolve oh absolutely I mean, look, we, we have lots of students who go out with a, a, a three-year degree and they're fantastic. Everybody's understanding of design drops, the penny drops at different points. Mm. And so some students won't be ready to go out. Some students will be ready to go out. Some students will need more time. Some students university never makes sense until they're actually out in a job or, or <laughs> actually no not university some students design never makes sense until they're in a job and they've got yep. the pressure of deadlines and budgets and all of those sorts of things but some people just get it straight away so there's a question we've been asking a few times uh, uh, along this mini series and it's that do you have someone that to you is like the exemplar of a great design teacher? 
Oh, Matt, I have lots. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what attributes do they have? Uh, they're kind but tough. Mm-hmm. They're polite but not polite and would just call it as it was. Yeah. And also uh, accepted me as from a student but then coming back and being a lecturer and, and collaborating with them and then ending up being their line manager and having to manage workloads and things like that. But the friendship has, has sustained since 1987. Oh, that's lovely. And and we're still in touch. So yeah, there are lots of there. There have been. I, I, look, I, I've been in. Uh, you know, I'm a Swinburne diehard, really. But <laughs> it it is one of those places where you can do lots of things, and there are people mm. who who show you a lot of respect at, at at every point of your growth. You know, and and I try to. I think I think I've just done that naturally because people did that with me. And, and noticed the good things about you, not the 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 fact that you you were late with your submission, or you know you didn't do this, or you shoved three floppy disks in their computer one time and completely <laughs> stuffed it. <laughs> Brilliant. I thought that was a good place to leave it. Someone out there is fondly remembering that broken computer, maybe not fondly. If you want to find out more about Nikki and what she's done, the best place is LinkedIn. You can see all her experience and get in contact. Thanks for joining us on this, our first mini-series in the new format. If you have any questions or feedback, get us at hello at ozdesignradio.com. If you liked what you heard, please tell others or leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Next episode, we're doing something a little different with one of our reissue episodes. This is where we delve through the archives to get an old episode, pull out a few sound bites, and then get the original guest to comment on them. Way back in episode two, we spoke to Christopher Doyle, so we'll be getting his current take on some of the statements he made. I'm hoping it'll be as fun as it sounds. No pressure, Chris, if you're listening. Australian Design Radio is produced by me, Matt Leach, with digital advice and website surgery from Braden Towns. Music by Alex Salter from Grey Area Sound. 